Hello friends, welcome to the Create Magic Podcast. We have another Creative Weirdo segment today, and I had the immense pleasure of sitting down with Joshua Cutchin, who is one of my favorite authors, musicians, thinkers, and all around just uh, wonderful people of the paranormal that I've got to uh, interact with so far. And we dive deep into... Uh, Joshua's new book, Ecology of Souls. It is a beautiful new mythology of the paranormal and death, and I am so excited to share this one with y'all. So right up front, I had some difficulties in the uh, beginning conversation when telling Josh about the Selbyville Swamp Monster and a little synchronicity I had as Vuk was explaining some things in our episode. So I kind of skipped to the end where Josh is responding to, which has to do with headless entities Vuk was telling me about in Delaware for our Selbyville Swamp Monster episode. And I was reading Josh's part of his book about headless entities at the same time. So the conversation picks up from there and goes on with more synchronicities that have surrounded Josh's book. I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you want to hear more about the actual Selbyville story or the uh, headless entities in Delaware, check out me and Vuk's conversation for his show linked below. I'll also have links to all of Josh's work, so go pick up some books and support him in whatever way you can. And yeah, enjoy the conversation. when Vuk started telling me that because I was writing that chapter and I I love those little nods of things lining up and yeah have you found a lot of that with your books well you know there was a lot well first of all (laughs) I love that story um it reminds me a lot of the the Chocolaco monster in Alabama which I talk about a little bit with that I talk about a little bit in where the footprints in and it was it was proven to be a hoax but at the same time the things that people were seeing were definitely not what it turned out to be, which was a guy again in a fur coat with a cow skull on his head. Um, people Amazing. were seeing like these, this humpbacked camel thing that like stopped their car engine and stuff like that. So I do think that you can like, and I, I can't, well, okay. I have, I have, I have plans. I have schemes, right. But okay. I do think that it's possible to sort of fill up experiment in an, an area. Right. I think that you can like put yeah. enough, put enough energy and intention and focus and belief and sort of generate belief around an area. And then that's just sort of acts as an attractor of actual genuine anomalies. I think that's a possible thing, but um, returning to the, to the synchronicities that you noticed. um, Yeah. Someone just sent me one the other day. Um, Maybe I'll have, I can have a chance to pull it up, but while I do pull it up, I can talk about the fact that um, a lot of synchronicities were, um, popping off during the editing process with my editor, Barbara Fisher. Um, she, uh, <clears throat> she had just gotten to the portion on Catabas is where I first mentioned that, that sort of motif. And, uh, her kid comes up to her and says, Hey, I want, uh, can, can I get this jacket or whatever? And hands her a, 
I wouldn't say magazine because I'm a kid of the '90s, right? But hands hands are on iPad with like you know the the, the jacket brought yeah. up, and the name of the the clothing store is Katavasis, and it's like what? That's <laughs> yeah, wild. yeah. What are, what are the odds wow. of that? Um, Absolutely. And then uh, and then um, uh, I okay. This is what someone recently sent me is that um, their books, their copies of Ecology of Souls arrived while they were listening to my interview with greg bishop on radio mysterioso uh, it's a synchronicity it's kind of like well maybe you're just Absolutely. like but you know when you're kind of putting yourself it's like oh i you know i was i was reading about bigfoot no. i was reading about bigfoot and my bigfoot books arrived it's kind of like well maybe you know maybe that's you're just saturating yourself um so there was that um think, sorry go, uh, go ahead oh no no go ahead i think there's something to that i think that there's like, so you know, uh, yeah go ahead so so uh so Barbara had some other stuff happen uh around some jewelry um and uh there's some other stuff I can't remember off the top of my head but uh the Catabasis one is one that sticks with me. There was also um my friend and co-author Tim Renner uh whom I wrote where the footprints in with uh mm-hmm. wrote me uh while you know Ecology of Souls was in production and had this dream he had had this dream that he wanted to share with me which is all about these like corpse-like giants that were ushering out to sea or something along those lines, which was again, like, oh, wow. I'm like, Oh, is, is what I'm doing bleeding? Cause those are all, you know, death motifs and it's like <laughs> what I'm doing bleeding into your dream life, Tim. So th- there seems to be a little bit of that, that I've been getting here and there. Um, and yeah. then here is another one to add to the list. Um, the, the UFO, uh, tarot, ufology tarot book that, uh, or ufology tarot project that I'm working on with, uh, Greg Bishop and Miguel Romero and some other folks um, is also one of those books. Like we just have so many synchronicities that have lined up around it. It's pretty uncanny. That's wonderful. I love when it seems to be the more uh, you embrace your creative life, the more these synchronicities happen and uh, the role that like the imagination or the imaginal kind of plays in all of that. It seems to be a very powerful, um, consistent theme. And when I hear people talk about synchronicities, it seems to be a lot like falling in love. You know, you, you shouldn't have to fight upstream too hard for it. You know, you should sort of end, you should Absolutely. sort of end up getting caught in the current and it takes you where you need to go. You know, that's such a hard lesson to learn in all aspects of life. Like uh, creatively, it's one of the hardest things I found. Like I've like it took me so long to realize that if you're like spending your whole time working on the craft of something and it's distracting from like what you're trying to communicate, it might not be the thing like that struggle might not be, might be an indicator that you're not meant to pursue that path. And like, I always saw struggle more as a initiation or something you have to go through. But then I realized that if you find things that flow more naturally, you tend to just be happier and work better. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, you realize like, I ran into this in my classical music training too. You realize that like, best practices are meant to be learned and then broken. You know what I mean? Like, you know, learn the techniques so you know when you're doing it wrong, but if it's a deliberate choice Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, different, I I would argue that in some instances, even grammar is like that, you know, in writing, it's like, well, I know there, there should be a comma here, but I'm going for something a little bit different, you know? That's awesome. And I, I love, there was, 
I can't remember who said it, and I'm sure you might know the quote, but there was someone who said, you know, don't lose the groove to find the note. Like, it's the worst thing you can do in music is to stop and, like, just play things with purpose. And if you hit that wrong note, but you do it like you're supposed to, then that's way better than, like, stopping and calling attention to Yeah, it. 100%. That sounds maybe like a Thelonious Monk quote or something. That's what I was thinking. It's yeah. definitely a jazz musician in there. So it's one of those things I've heard other people quote a million times, and it's all an amalgamation in my brain at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but you know it's, um, it's 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 totally true i've had some every now and then in my band somebody will sit in for me and i'm like okay well how how was he and it's like well he sounded good but he didn't groove like you and i'm like okay i'm not sure i know how i'm grooving but i'm glad that i am <laughs> so it's that ineffable i guess sort of like feeling i guess it's like where time and note choice and everything sort of meet up in the exact same spot but yeah, yeah and there's something to the um the certain combination of people that does create that ineffable magic that music can kind of portray. And like, I, I love looking at like uh, paranormal themes in music and art in general. And I think music's a great one. If you look at like the your experience of time via music, it's almost a great analogy for things like, you know, missing time and stuff like that, because you like the only time I've ever experienced missing time is playing an instrument or where I get lost in a drawing and I'm like, Oh shit, that was three hours ago what happened there <laughs> like and well, you just kind of come out of it yeah and you know something that um that christopher knowles has said for a long time is that uh you know if you want to see what it's like to channel a spirit or something like learn an instrument really well and then get into a band and like you'll you'll watch yourself do things that you didn't know that you were doing yeah. like where did that come from and you'll listen back and you're like i don't know like that wasn't me <laughs> like it just sort yeah. of came to me no, in the spot absolutely and then there's, you know, I think there's, I think this goes underappreciated and it does sort of blend with like people who spend a lot of time rehearsing together or play a lot of gigs together. But I think there's some low level telepathy that goes on with music as well, you know, where you just, no, I think there is thinking in the same thing at the same time without even speaking about it. It's like, Oh, we all chose this new feel. And it's like, how do we all know that we wanted to do that? And some of it's body language and some of it's playing together and maybe you've done it before, but like, when it just lines up like that, it's, you know, there was a drummer that I used to work with where I could just give, cause like, you know, you're, you're playing tuba in a new Orleans style brass band. You never, you literally never have the chance to like say anything, you know, you're always just going. <laughs> so like, you know, but I would just be able to look at him and like, we would switch up the feel right away, like mm -hmm. dramatically. And I got, you know, yeah. I guess maybe it was like, maybe it was eyes and body language or something, but I think that maybe there's some low level telepathy going on there too. No, I agree. And even when you extend that out to the uh, interaction between the band and the audience and things, there's definitely a nonverbal or more psychic based communication going on, I feel like, or maybe even more emotional. Like I, when you are uh, it, it, part of a performance, there's something that you're kind of, there's a give and take that's almost hard to describe that I, I love about live music, you know? There's something yeah. that's, you can't really mimic in other things. Yeah, um, the audience is always the extra member of the band, you know? It's yeah playing to a, an empty room or even worse, like an uninterested audience just completely changes yes. the performance 100%. You, you ain't kidding. That's very honest. That's uh, very accurate. Um, so to tie this back to the book, where did you see as far as like imagination and creativity in this kind of new mythology of death and the paranormal? Like where would you place that its role in all of this? Well, you know, I, I try to go 
and you know, there's some people who probably quibble with my choice of the exact words, but I try to go to some great length to sort of outline imaginal versus imaginary, right? You know, imaginal being yeah. from your head and imaginary being in your head. Um, but I think that, uh, that we don't appreciate the power of just thought in general and the power of imagination in general. I mean, everything, every object that you look around or you look at you look, sorry, every object that you look at around you um, started off as, as a thought in someone's head, you know, and that's kind of miraculous when you think about that, you know Um, it's like, it's like a microcosm of, you know, the opening of Genesis in a way, like everything around you started out that way. Um, and granted there were tools and inks and dyes and stuff, but like a lot of these things existed in someone's completely in someone's head. And sometimes they don't make it out onto the page or, you know, don't make it into sculpture or whatever the way that it was in their head. But like, you know, you as an artist get that, like, you know, <laughs> you, you, you yeah, definitely no, get absolutely. that. And that's why I think that, you know, things like art are so important. Um, and which is why, you know, uh, some thoughts that, uh, that people like Jeffrey Kripal talk about really resonate with me. The idea that the, uh, the paranormal is almost uh, a story awakening to its author or something along those lines. And I think that's poetic. And I, I don't necessarily entirely know what that means, but I think that it, I think that it's touching on some sort of, some sort of deeper truth. So I think that the imaginal is, is definitely a part of this. And once you start to see that our inner lives have a certain, dare I say, even an objective reality to themselves, then things like death, which were already a mystery, seem much more open to a lot of other possibilities than, oh, the lights go out, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it really does. I, I think that's the value in all of this is uh, kind of rehatching, for lack of a better term, what I've called almost like high school stoner conversations that people stop having because like those are the conversations that need to continue. And it's funny talking about being in bands and that like special connection. I was in a touring band for a while and that was the last time before I got back into this, that I had those big conversations was driving really late at night after yeah. gigs and like <laughs> yeah. listening to some weird bullshit on like a podcast. Exactly. Exactly. And like, I think those are the conversations that people take less seriously as they get older for some reason. And the, the paranormal is a beautiful way to get back into it all. Like it really is that way to open that, uh, that door. Well, I think when the paranormal is done right, it's stoner conversations with the support of historical research and ethnographic research and even dare I say scientific research. Right. You know what I mean? So yes, like, absolutely. so there's a certain purity and I guess sort of innocence behind the stoner, the stoner ideas that come after the bong rip. But, um, yeah. but, but at the same time, like some of those ideas, if you can find ways to support them, make you sort of, it sort of legitimizes them a little bit, I guess. Dude, absolutely. And it's one of those things where, um, it's well before I go into that thought real like I want how I got back into the paranormal is almost a synchronicity with the ecology of souls book so like I am like a lot of people I've talked to kind of fell off like I was in bands and focusing on trying to like make money off of drawing silly pictures and stuff for most of my 20s and stuff uh was looking at like we got a house and we're like oh we should have some kids and all that got pregnant or you know we started having kids and before we had our first kid i was like huh they're eventually gonna be like what's death 
like what happened like grandpa died what happens and like you're or like you know my fish died where goes it and like those questions that i hadn't thought about in a long time because i'd been so caught up in the you know making a little career and all mm-hmm. that stuff and i was like huh so I, I i went down the the you know stuff i started with in high school and college like terrence mckenna and and these thinkers that are a little bit more tied to the psychedelic realm really fell in with the ram das way of thinking and stuff like that to kind of lead more to the buddhist spirituality side and that led me back to uh robert anton wilson which led me to actually uh uh jeffrey kripal pretty quickly from robert anton wilson and like one of the first books i read was mutants and mystics that got me like all the way back into it and it's because of that like parallel of the imagination and imaginal and that like psychedelic humanist movement and those are things that i love and the way that it was taking all of it so seriously. Like it was taking it all like, this is not only like real, but this is the way forward. And that's like, that's where I kind of got into, I was like, okay, I'm going to get all the way back into the paranormal. And so, yeah, through that, all those things, the consistent message is death. Like if you look at Ram Dass, like his biggest teaching is go sit with the dying, sign up for hospice. If you want to experience like spiritual awakening or anything along those lines, start by getting familiar with death. That's the first thing. And, you know, that all comes from his experience, like giving Buddhist masters uh, psychedelics in India and them being like, this is nothing. Like, this is what I experience all the time. What are you talking about? Like yeah. giving him like all those stories just like amazed me. But then it led me back. Like there's so many parallels, but the biggest parallel is death. And I had never heard somebody say it until you start talking about this book and as soon as i heard you start talking about like even before i knew what the book was going to be i was like oh this is going to be a good one <laughs> well, well you know I, I i appreciate it um i i've had some people say that you know maybe there's you sort of once you start looking for death you see it everywhere and that's because you know you're sort of self-selecting and filtering for it and i, I definitely understand that and i definitely sympathize with that but at the same time you know i I think you can, I think it's fair to say that even, you know, our scientific establishment would say that everything t- tends towards entropy. You know, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's the natural endpoint. Um, now I, I would argue that there's something else in the universe that also wants to, to create, right. I, I think that that's mm-hmm. just as strong an impulse in a lot of ways, but you know, entropy defines everything, you know, um, how, how, you know, how often have you, how often have you gotten into a new hobby and you find out, oh, I have to switch this component out every six months or something like that. You know, there's always, a, there's always a hook, like uh, a little known, little known fact about Josh. Um, I, I uh, had a brief time when I was into, uh, into bull whips uh, of all things and I got pretty good. Oh, wow. I got, I've got pretty good. I was That's able to, awesome. I was able to take things out of my friend's mouths if they stood in profile. Like I got pretty good. <laughs> But, um, but you know, there are components even on like a bullwhip where like, oh, you're going to have to replace this fall over time. You know, you're going to have to replace the popper yeah. over time. You're going to have to take it in for maintenance. And it's like, yeah, everything tends towards entropy, right? Um, it really does. And uh, so I, I think that it's kind of – so, you know, maybe maybe it's self-selecting, maybe not. But I, I do think that, you know, death is the uh, – is sort of the gateway to understanding that this does seem to be about the cyclicality of, of existence. If, you know, if, if it's objective and if there is something to it and it's not all a bunch of, you know, uh, you know, made up stories. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there is an argument, argument to be made that if it's not all about death, 
death is a thread that help that I think can yield greater understanding to what the the shared components are. And you know, I've, I've definitely become a pan paranormalist over time. I mean, you just yeah. If you're really immersing yourself in these, this stuff as you are, um, or as you know, as I am, as I have over the past couple of years, and you're not confined to just reading UFO literature or just reading cryptid literature or just reading ghost literature, and if you're really stretching out, you start to see like so many of these things exhibit so many of the same attributes. It's not even funny. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. And it would be more peculiar for me for them to not be connected you know so and again that connection might be like someone who's looking at the entire you know mammal family and saying oh all these things have hair and and they and they and they 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 nurse their offspring with milk and they they don't hatch from eggs with the exception of monotremes i know but like so maybe that's it maybe they're all like you know maybe they're all of sort of a similar family like mammals and and maybe you know i'm putting too much of an emphasis on their connectivity but there's you know still some sort of connection there a shared ancestor of sorts yeah (laughs) and that makes me think of actually one of my favorite mckenna rants and i don't know if it's i can't remember which i've watched so many i go through times where i'll just watch tons of youtube videos of him but he talks about the idea of um, deduction versus induction induction and coming to ideas uh like deduction is more of something you start with uh, something and you reason back to that. Like there's one core idea and you're supporting that one core idea. And induction is more of finding things that repeat and observing what repeats the most and putting your you know, money in or your time investing in studying what repeats and having that become a law almost. And I think there's something to that way of study, like very much like what you do with folklore, like being able to say there's these consistencies, not only in folklore, but in spirituality and psychedelics and all of these other realms and that's what like that's where the the juice is for lack of a better word for me like i yeah yeah no i i can't i can't say how happy it makes me to hear that you know you've you've spent you've gone on those uh saint terry benders like i have um and, you know and it's it's you know i've never not that i don't obviously you've read the book so like i it's not that i don't think that there's some value in psychedelics i've just never done any any of them because i'm mm-hmm. Part of me is too chicken, um, <clears throat> quite frankly. But, um, but like, if, if you're happy with the way your mind is, I don't <laughs> right, my, right, right. My buddy put it really good. Um, he's very heavy. Like he was doing ayahuasca trips in like 2000 before it was like a thing. Mm-hmm. And, like he's very heavy in all of this, and he's like, it reshuffles the deck. If you're happy with the way your deck shuffled, you don't really need to have that direct experience, and you can get the benefits in other ways. You can have that like ego death or the other things that people claim are, but you don't have to like you don't need to reshuffle the whole deck if you're happy with where you are at <laughs> yeah you know i'd like to fix a couple of things in the engine but i don't need a whole new car you know <laughs> exactly yeah. and you never know what you're gonna get yeah, like you exactly. could just get that engine fixed or you could get a whole new car <laughs> and then who knows with me with my luck that car would be like a yugo or something but uh, <laughs> but um yeah but uh, yeah i didn't mean to interrupt you there but no, that, no, that's no, no, no 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 i i i i appreciate that because you know i well that's i won't i won't go down that other discussion but uh some people are like you know how can you talk, how can you write about these things if you haven't tried it and i'm like well astronomers write about space who haven't been to space like i don't see what the difference is but um and the whole point is the, of the book is you can touch that via other things like you're right. touching the same thing in psychedelics exactly. whether you're doing it via you know all these other things that you list from out-of-body experiences to ndes to just being creative i really think that just like 
uh, embracing a creative life is as psychedelic a thing or being a parent that's the most fucking psychedelic thing i've ever done as far as like like the definition of psychedelic being like mind changing yeah. or whatever like that like being a parent that is psychedelic no, you know you're you're absolutely right yeah because i've you, listened to i was just gonna oh, say go it, it makes you rethink things and in, in ways that you it really does break down well, a lot like psychedelics. It breaks down those pathways that you've established over the years of thinking in a certain way. Yeah. You know? yeah. Do you think uh, being a parent played a role into wanting to do this book or your thoughts on mortality and things in general? Uh, well, uh, yes and no. Um, there's sort of a confluence of a bunch of different things. Um, bef- before we move on to that, I just want to say that like, I wish that everybody involved in any sort of paranormal topic, would sit down and just listen to Terrence McKenna lectures for a week. Cause I, I think that yeah. it would sort of, again, it would sort of, uh, disentrain <laughs> their thinking, <laughs> their thinking in a lot of ways and, and allow them to, pers- to, to take a tackle things from different angles. But yes, yes. And no, uh, the boys played a role. Um, I've been thinking about this idea for a while and, you know, it was that Ann Streber quote. This is, this has something to do with what we call death. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, some of the other things about, you know, the dead appearing in alien abductions and the dead's association with fairies. So that had been in my mind for a while, but, um, I went to rehab for alcohol abuse, checked myself in October of 2020. And, you know, it just seemed like the right time to come out of that and write about something like this, you know, a really reflective, yeah self-reflective work in a lot of ways. I don't think, I mean, you, you probably picked up on it because, you know, we corresponded a little bit, but um, so much of the book really is self-reflective in a way that doesn't make it into the text. But if you reread it with that in mind, you can kind of see <laughs> how I'm sort of using it's it there. to sort through my own stuff. Yeah. And of course the afterward makes it explicit, but um, you yeah. know, it was, it's sort of tied into 2020 in general. Um, 2020, I think a lot of people missed the boat. And I'm not like bragging about that. I, I did catch the boat. Right. But at the same time, I think a lot of people missed the boat and they, you know, that was the time for a personal rebuilding, you know, um, whatever was going to happen on the other side of the pandemic was going to be different, um, for better or ill. Um, and, uh, and so what better time to do your own personal, you know, work, uh, than that. So that's kind of why I'm kind of glad I, I went and got the treatment that I did. But at the same time, you know, it's kind of like, okay, well, that's also the time where like punctuation mark, this is, this is a punctuation mark on, on a part of your life. And I've been kicking this idea around for so long that, uh, it just seemed like the appropriate time. So that was a factor. Um, but yeah, you know, just being around boys, my boys and seeing the, uh, the fragility of life and, and that sort of cycle, you know, they were, when I started this book, they were just like a, about a year and a half old. Um, so yeah, it, all that sort of gets foregrounded for you a bit. And, uh, you start thinking about your own mortality and your own legacy. And it was just like, okay, it's, it's death time. Like, let's write about this. So <laughs> to that end, my wife, the entire time was like, nobody's going to want to read a book about death. Why are you writing a book about death? That's so depressing. And I'm like, it's, but it's not, it's not depressing. Like to the, I think to the contrary, well, that it's, 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 it's a non-depressing book, but no, absolutely. And that's one of my things, my favorite things about the book that I definitely want to touch on is that it's this like, it's a, 
beautifully positive book if you read it right like and like i think that like one of my favorite trends that i see in the paranormal mainly from people that you've referenced already like jeffrey kripal and greg bishop and all these people are pushing for a more positive story a more positive mythology of all this because i mean I think myth is the most powerful thing in the world. I really think that stories are like what makes everything and, uh, you know, yeah. just putting all my cards on the table. And the more that we can uh, generate a positive version of these things, whether it's death or spirituality or the paranormal or any of these like big topics you touch on, the more that the world will be a better place. Like I, I love that quote from Whitley where he says that we need a better science fiction. And I think yeah, that yes. Kripal uses that one a lot. And I think he there's does. like so much to that because like, yeah, I think that that can lead us forward in a really nice way. <laughs> well, and, and the thing that sort of ties into that, that I think really frustrates me is that I think a lot of people miss in like these, you know, endless compilations of folklore motifs and in the Joseph Campbell stuff and even in the Jungian stuff, like they look at it as tools for deciphering monomyths and they look at it for tools for deciphering folklore and, and all these sort of <clears throat> older tales. But what they don't realize, I think, is that once they start, you know, viewing their own lives through those same archetypes and those same narratives, it kind of makes things a hell of a lot clearer. Um, yeah, like, absolutely. Oh, this is what I'm going through. Like, you know, um, you know, for me, rehab was the belly of the whale and, uh, I have a journal like right here in my desk. Um, I just, I, I wrote so much in a, in a handwritten journal during that uh, time that I was there. And it was all just like, I mean, probably ramblings, actually, if I go back and reread it, but um, <laughs> archetypes and, and like and how like the only way that I can get through this is by embracing certain uh, tropes like this is what this is what's expected of you as the next step on the hero's journey, you know, and you can either turn this into a heroic tale or you can turn it into a tragedy, you know, but you know, there's, I think there's some degree of free agency there, but at the same time, like once you see yourself with all that baggage of something like the hero's journey, giving you momentum, I think it helps carry you through some of these darker times. Um, I agree. And, and, you know, and then, and then what I love about, you know, archetypes and stuff like that too, is that like, it allows you to sort of start seeing the source code of, of everything around you. Yeah. And for, for me, like for, for me, it allows me to approach like some art or some iconography or some, you know, um, you know, cultural symbolism that I have no background for, but I can say, okay, well, I don't know what that is, but you know, this bird, well, bird soul, um, you know, birds as, uh, you know, civilizing tricksters, you know, bringing fire from the gods or whatever. It gives you, it gives you, a, it gives you a set of tools where you can start to maybe put it together with other, uh, with other context clues and sort of maybe get an understanding of something that you shouldn't have any understanding of at all. Absolutely. It gives you a starting point and a basis of relation. That's huge. And, you know, I've listened to a lot of smarter people talk about the idea of, um, and I, I like looking at it view, through the view of comic books, but uh, kind of looking at it as the modern way of thinking is 
deconstructed some of those archetypes so far that we're in this point of rebuilding. Like uh, if you look at like the 70s and 80s, like kind of comics with Watchmen and Dark Knight that completely destroy this like, you know, mythological archetype of good versus evil. And essentially we go into the 90s comics with the assumption that evil won. Like every comic book in the 90s was like the villains already won. We're starting from a place of nothing. And like that completely changes the archetype and i think that you see now like people rebuilding the more traditional like golden and silver age archetypes and uh, applying that to the paranormal is super interesting to me or just like the world mythology in general i could not agree more and i've thought about this a lot um with again with 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 my sons because i find the deconstruction stuff fascinating I love it. Mm-hmm. I think it's well warranted. I think it was time for it. Yep. I think it's time to break those things apart. Totally. But at the same time, these guys, these toddlers, they don't they haven't even gotten the the fairy tales yet. You know what I mean? They haven't yeah. even gotten yeah. they haven't even gotten bored by the trope of the prince saving the princess from the dragon, you know? Exactly. And when you come into a culture that has deconstructed everything, I don't think that's a healthy way to approach these myths for the first time. You know, I mean, I think that you've got to, you know, it's, it's kind of like somebody handing you a keyboard, a piano keyboard and saying, well, you know, Schoenberg came along and uh, there's a bunch of other composers and, you know, we're not really worried about tonality. So just bang on the keys. Well, that's great, but you're not going to make anything interesting until you learn the, the formalism of it. And then you can re-deconstruct, yes. re, re right? And so... I think about that a lot and, you know, I'm going to say this next thing and there are people who are probably going to pounce on me as being a traditionalist and that's not the case. It's just me just um, being sort of refreshed by something a little bit more um, <laughs> out of place because we're so used to deconstruction and whatnot. There's um, – I think it's a hit or miss uh, series on Netflix, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities and I've been making my way through it and one of the, one of the episodes – is there's a character who's a woman who uh, goes into a self-destructive spiral. And the moment you see the husband, I'm like, okay, he's going to be a verbally abusive, you know, POS husband. He's going to be a jerk to her. And he's actually like a super supportive character of her. And he's trying to help oh, wow. her. And he's, he's a little bit more passive than he should be, but he's like super supportive and he's, tr- he's compassionate and he's trying to help her and he wants her best interests in mind. And, you know, to the very end, he's really positive with her and, you know, uh, you know, reaffirming her body image and all this great stuff. And I'm like, that's so refreshing to see for a change, you know, because it's become, so I guess what I'm getting at is like deconstruction and it's, 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 it's just become kind of stale. It's almost like, you know, when somebody makes fun of religion nowadays, it's like, Oh, you're being so edgy. Like, it's not, yep. it's no longer edgy anymore. Like it's, it's become like, you know, the default, it's, it's become the default position. Right. And not, totally. saying that there, not saying that there is or isn't virtue in that. Right. Like I, I think that, I think that sometimes it's, it's, it's great to be critical of religion and to make fun of religion. I think it's sometimes it's great to not do that, but it's, when, it, when one of, when one or the other becomes the default position, then that's when the subversion creeps in. So I think you're exactly right that the pendulum has swung so far into the trend of deconstruction and sort of downer endings <laughs> that the, um, the hope that almost Tolkien-esque you catastrophe idea of you know, yeah. good sweeping at the last minute. Um, I think it's, I think it's going to come swinging back in the other direction because 
deconstruction has become stale. You know, it's become it's become yeah. the default method, the default method of viewing things. It's we've we've gotten as much as we can get out of it, I feel like. And so that whole idea with via the comics is all in this book, Super Gods by Grant Morrison, who's just like one of my favorite writers and thinkers of this type of stuff. And uh, one of my favorite quotes that he ends after breaking down like the different generations, the Silver Age versus the or the Golden Age versus the Silver Age versus the 80s and 90s villains. He ends in the like mid 2000s with uh, the big like new marvel and dc like movements but he ends the chapter being like the good guy still won we won now what do we do and i think that's like such a good question for people and like I, i've heard people like douglas rushkoff say similar things about the counterculture where he was like i think it was a disinfocon speech he gave where he was like hey y'all this is like in 1995 or something he's like we won like we got this like we are the counterculture has become the culture in certain ways so what the fuck do we do with it now? right and, and then I you think wind up like, with you wind up with you know that's how you wind up with Oh, sorry, you're lagging a bit. You there? Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, I'm there. Um, Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so when the counterculture wins and becomes established, that's when you wind up with white people in headdresses. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like that's that's <laughs> that, and you know that's when you wind up with with uh, that's when you wind up with big big corporations endorsing microdosing, and it's like, okay, well, yeah. you're co-opting this victory to mean something that it never was intended to be. You know? No this wasn't supposed to be a way for making employees work more efficiently like these these uh mind altering drugs are supposed to be a way for them to realize the corporations might not be the answer yeah and, uh, do other things with their... 100%. But I, I i know i've heard you touch on loosely the idea of these things being held back in a kind of conspiratorial form and i i as far as like mind altering ideas whether it's religions or uh psychedelics and things like that and i love that like i think that our not love that but i think there's something to it not in the way that it's even like a group of people that are doing it but just like almost like the general cultural uh intelligence knows it's not the right time for it if that makes sense like i feel like it's almost like bigger than like man-made systems as far as like letting this stuff into the mass cultures or uh, that could just be a, a completely wrong reading of it but uh no. it's something i like to play around with no i agree and i think about this a lot because you find these folks um who are very much into like breaking down the symbolism behind corporate logos or the symbolism behind Super Bowl halftime shows or, you know, Olympic opening yeah. ceremonies. Right. And they're finding all the symbolism. I'm, I'm not saying that the symbolism isn't there, but I take the opposite stance rather than that. There's some cabal that's appropriating all this imagery. I, I take the stance that like these archetypes are so powerful that people are drawn to them regardless you know, like these form, like in, in from a design standpoint, like, well, yeah, it looks like the eye of Horus because there's something aesthetically appealing about that shape that has a power of its own that draws, you know, for example, corporations Absolutely. to style their logos after that. And to me, that's a, actually a more magical worldview than the idea that there's some sort of grand secret organization pulling the strings and pulling on this all, all this iconography. 
Absolutely. And that's what I'm about. I'm I'm into this stuff for the more magical worldview or the more wonder inducing things. And I think that idea plays through so much. Like even like the uh, the gray alien to lamb and all of those connections with the big round head and the large eyes like the, that's like just a pleasing thing to draw as an artist. I'll tell you right now, like drawing a gray alien head in the way that we know it, it just feels good. Like there's certain like shapes and like icons that just feel good good to draw and i think there's something to that like you know i had lamb ruin for me um a couple of weeks ago Ooh, do you want me to ruin, ruin it you, for you me. want me to ruin it for you yes too? please please uh try turning that drawing upside down okay yeah wait really yeah. what am i gonna see you're gonna see either male genitalia going into a <laughs> rear end or you're gonna or you're gonna see a or you're gonna see a baby coming out of the rear end Amazing. So the idea that Lamb is a gray alien, I've obviously soured on a bit, um, because we all know that Cro- Crowley was a sex pest, um, oh, yeah. uh, and uh, I think that it, Lamb is kind of a it, Lamb is a butt baby, basically. Um, Lamb is the is, so is, is, is 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 a child being born out of an anus. Um, and then when I had a had a friend uh, who was into Eastern. Um, uh, philosophy is telling me that the uh the oh, i'll get mixed up with this i believe it's like the the the, the chakra associated with your anus is is pronounced lum and it's spelled l-a-m mm-hmm. so that's so true that's so funny because i've heard that so, and never put those two together <laughs> now so so at the same time like image wise i'm not convinced that that's a proto gray alien but at the same time like you put that sort of anal image or that anal sort of idea up against you know whitley's encounters and you're like, say, it's not unrelated yeah it's, it's it's not it's not unrelated it's just not related in the way that people think it is so yeah i had i had which is almost a better way f- but that's almost better to me like that's the type of stuff that makes me think there's probably something more there than than like well, you said yeah well, there, there's 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 more, there's more there's more depth to that actually then oh it's an alien right but at the same time exactly. i was i was always i was always so yeah when, no, whenever you get the chance just take that image and just bloop, turn it around and you will see it right away totally yeah. that's so funny well that's amazing i am definitely going to do that <laughs> um so uh, while we're on imagery dude i love the artwork in the book oh. like, the illustrations throughout and the cover and uh, it's just gorgeous like and i've also i've heard you speak about the idea of putting this out on your own and like i love the idea of like purposeful publishing for lack of lack of a better i uh phrase like i like the idea of people that think about the way that their art's going into the world and like it was did that thought kind of start with this book or was that something you came to throughout it? And did you have an artist, like how early on was the artist involved in all of this? Well, the idea that I was going to self publish, I have a lot of good things to say about my relationships with my relationship with my publisher of my other books, uh, Patrick Weege and anomalous books. Literally one of the nicest human beings I've ever met runs a great publishing house. I mean, I consider Anomalous to be like the Oxford Press of of, of weird books, right? So, absolutely. And especially when you're starting out, having a publisher ha- publishing house at your disposal, the media apparatus, the editors, the layout people, um, it's a great help. And so, if you, if 
and also it just legitimizes you to a degree, right? Like the fact that somebody else has Absolutely. read your stuff and says, oh, it's, it's okay, you know? So, and, and I, I can see myself going back to Anomalist for a future project. Um, but at the same time, I had such a good experience with Where the Footprints End with Tim self-publishing that. Uh, and I'd sort of made connections to some folks who uh, I knew could help me with some of the technical aspects of it. Uh, that I decided to self-publish this, and it's it's a significant investment if you want to do it right. That's the reason. That's the main reason that a lot of this self-published stuff out there is drek is because they don't bother hiring an editor. You know, they might have a buddy read it, oh. but they don't buy her like actually saying, "Oh, I'm going to pay you to edit this." Pay you for this? Yeah, that um, makes a difference. Yeah. Like people undervalue that that commerce makes a difference in the actual editing and stuff like that. Oh, 100 like, percent. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm sorry. That's really important. No, to no, me as no. Far as paying people. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Imagine that an artist finding it important to pay people um they don't talk about hiring someone to do the layout like people don't have a real grasp of how many things go into laying out a book you know considering the gutter considering orphans and widows i mean people haven't even heard of half these terms right but these are things that when you my favorite these are things that when you format a book like you need to have an eye for and a consideration for and then there's the ebook formatting, which is its own creature. And then there's the art, right? So, um, so I was like, okay, well, I want to self-publish this, but I want it to be pretty damn tight, right? Mm-hmm. So I had Barbara editing, and I had um, Mike Cleland uh, did the interior layout because he was a graphic designer slash artist. He's a fantastic artist. If you've ever seen his hand drawn stuff, Absolutely. he's a fantastic I artist in it. his own right. But he also has a great eye. Um, you know, the, 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 the Mike's best and worst quality is that he's very thorough and very detail oriented. <laughs> I love, I love Mike to death. He's, he's one of my favorite people. Um, but yeah, so Mike Absolutely. was an amazing help on this. Um, and he did the, he did the ebook as well, but also like Mike provided a lot of feedback with like, I don't think this is clear or, you know, he ended up kind of reading the whole book on his own. Uh, in the in the meantime, so he would like pick out a sentence and he'd say, "I think you word this a little bit clearer." So, but you know, these are again, these are all people that I am paying money that I've saved up to do. Totally. And uh, I had an idea really early on for what I wanted the art to generally look like, and the main thing was you know Saint Terry of McKenna, um, in in that. But but just the, but beyond that, just sort of a more Byzantine sort of style that draws upon a lot of the different uh, themes of the book. And uh, I've been, you know, I've worked with Tim Renner so much and I love Tim's stuff. I really do. Um, but I said, Absolutely. I said, Tim, I said, I don't want to get associated with you as my brand necessarily, you know, because <laughs> uh, there's some, very fair. I've got another collection of essays that may or may not ever be released that Tim's done the artwork for that cover as well. So like he's, he's done enough. Of, we've had enough of a relationship with artwork. I'm like, if not you this is what I want. Who do you recommend? And right away he said, Johnny Decker Miller. And I went to Johnny's website and uh, saw his etchings that he's done. Like this, all this very medievalist, very medievalist influence. He's like, Johnny, he's your man. Like it was, the text was a way to Tim for maybe like 10 seconds before he shot it right back to me. Johnny Decker Miller is your guy. And a fantastic guy. Um, I shared some stuff with him and uh, he, he turned in not only these two miraculous covers, but all these spot illustrations. Um, yeah, that's some of my favorite stuff because yeah. people don't take the time to do that anymore. Well, like, I loved illustrated books yeah. growing up. That was my favorite. Like the yeah. the, the the visitor with the uh, 
the 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 Whitley Strieber visitor with the the skull in the eye is like oh, <laughs> probably yeah. my favorite. It's just gorgeous. But um, but you know, part of what that was too, and I think that a lot of a lot of creative types could learn from this is hire someone whose style you like, who is very competent at what they do, give them the most basic parameters of what you want, and then say, you do you, you know? Um, I think that's super important because like, you know, you've got to you, you hire someone that you trust. And even if you don't have an immediate love of something like sit with it for a little bit, see if it grows on you and then be like, you know what? This was their instinct. They're the artist. I hired them because I trust them. Go with it. So, you know, uh, all across those three, uh, the three primary people that I paid Mike, Barbara and, and Johnny, um, there were moments of that. It's like, well, I know I don't want, uh, well, uh, okay. Yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess you are right. And now I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what it should have been. You know, I mean, for example, Barbara was like, uh, headlessness was going to be just the concluding chapter. And she was like, make it an epilogue, like sort of give it. So that's when I put in that pivot piece about, you know, making the, the choice to stay or go, um, and turning it into an epilogue. I'm like, that was, that was a good choice too. Like the book works without that headlessness chapter but it also I think is enriched by it as well. So an epilogue is what it should have been. Uh, It it was a really cool choice and that's awesome to hear that. First off, that is just so important to uh, hear in general as a freelance uh, working artist. Like that is such a rarity as far as, you know, I get hired to do a lot of stuff and it's usually kind of the opposite as far as either do whatever you want there's whatever you feel and then you submit something like well whatever you feel but that (laughs) it's like yeah you could have given me something to start like that give them something to start with but let them do what they're gonna do and like the the respect for who you're hiring is so huge like that's like a giant thing and i don't know there's just so much in the way of creativity and um uh, artistic output that doesn't get compensated correctly in all realms and like it's not a yeah. you know a specific thing so that, that that's just great to hear josh that makes that makes me very well happy. you know and, i mean uh, i think it i've run into it that enough you know as a musician it's the exact same thing yeah you that's know? true that's true well, you're an artist so yeah, it's, it. it's like yeah and, and you know and talking to other artists and talking to other musicians it's like just hire you know and also like god almighty one of my one of my tasks at the University of Georgia was to you know to well my primary task was doing public relations for the School of Music and that meant things like designing posters for some of these for some of these yeah. you know ensembles and you'd get some of these faculty members with their heads at their rear ends that would come back to you with like ten rounds of edits and it's like this is a poster for a free concert it's fine the auditorium's going to be a quarter <laughs> the auditorium's going to be a quarter of the way full either way like. I've got a thousand other things to do. This technically isn't in my job description. Like trust, trust my, and of course, you know, and you know, sometimes they want you to add more and more clutter and like from a design standpoint, this looks like garbage and I'm the one, like you've got to trust my instincts on this. So, so yeah, it was that experience too, where it's like, and, and Johnny even said like, you know, he appreciated how much free reign that he had. Like he just sort of, I gave him, I gave him a list of images and said, pick and choose. And then like once or twice, I was like, he'd send me some sketches and be like, okay, I love all this. Can you, can you throw in, you know, item two B as well? And he'd be like, yeah, sure. I can work that in somewhere. And, you know, and luckily, luckily that sort of Byzantine style allows it to be a little bit busier because there's a lot, there's a lot going on in those covers. 
Well, the Easter eggs are the best part. Like being able to go through and pick out all the little symbols and like all the things that are nods to different parts of the books. I mean, I love art like that. That's it's probably because I'm a Simpsons kid and I grew up like just finding background jokes. In the yeah, Simpsons. Yeah. That's like it's kind of what I live for in a lot of ways. So yeah. <laughs> that was that really spoke to me. Uh, and speaking of like artists and the paranormal. So like the reason I started this section of the podcast is because I have two like main groups of friends and they are like working artists or creatives and people in the weird. And one of the things I've noticed is how much of a overlap there is, but how hesitant, like a lot of the people that like kind of are researchers or people that have podcasts or these things in the realm of the paranormal are so hesitant to call themselves artists and artists are really hesitant to talk about all this weird stuff like consciousness and like, you know, like they don't want to sound pretentious or like, you know, up their own ass. And I'm like, but you guys know it. And like you tap it, you do it, you tell me these things. So I kind of started this to kind of explore those connections and it's nothing new. Like there's other uh, people that have, done this and noticed it before but what's your experience as far as the relation in the two being that you kind of ride both lines yourself i mean it's, it's not a perfect circle um because i mean i'm kind of an experience well i guess if i take objective stock of what's happened to me i'm more of an experiencer than i give myself credit for but <laughs> it's it's not a perfect circle but the venn diagrams overlap in a significant way i i feel like they're tapping into the same thing and this is what a lot of people who are wed to the flesh and blood hypothesis with Bigfoot or the extraterrestrial hypothesis with UFOs, or even I'd argue, you know, the dead people hypothesis with ghosts. They want it so much to be this objective material thing that they don't realize that this is the same realm that artists are embedded in all the time. And yeah. it's imaginal and it's not, I don't, th I personally don't think we're ever going to have a landing by, Aliens, not that aliens might not visit us, but like whatever the phenomenon that we're seeing in the skies is, I don't think that's going to land anytime soon. And I yeah. don't think that we're going to, I am highly uh, skeptical that we'll ever have a Bigfoot body. And I can say with a pretty strong degree of certainty that we're never going to have a dog man body, right? So, <laughs> so this leads people to say, people who operate on this binary of, of real or not real, uh, who haven't got, got crossed that imaginal imaginary boundary to say, Oh, well, it's not real. You know, it's not physical, so it's not real. But I, I think that what they don't realize is that if if you look at sort of the way that, uh, that artists operate, like this stuff is real and always has been real. Even like, you know, this is something that Alan Greenfield has said that I think a lot of people haven't quite caught on to is that there are no hoaxes. And that doesn't mean that yeah. that doesn't mean that there aren't people who lie. But that doesn't mean that there are people who say that they've seen things and that they haven't and that they've made you know, models of UFOs in the sky or something. That doesn't mean that. What it means is that every hoax engenders and encourages a certain amount of belief, and that belief is one of, I suspect, the primary mechanisms by which these things become more objective, by which the imaginal is made more more uh, more real. <laughs> Um, it's a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky line to walk because, you know, you can sort of wind up in a place where like a religious fundamentalist says, well, this is my version of reality. And so you've got to adhere by that. Right. Because like, that's sort of where this road kind of leads, it's sort of where the road kind of leads. So you've kind of got to, you kind of got to walk it, um, 
it's it's a personal path, right? It's not a societal path that we can take. Yes. Um, no, I agree. Because we have to we have to share some sort of some sort of base reality. But as far as a personal path, I think that's entirely true. Um, which brings me back around again to my thing that I always harp on about, like you know, disclosure. Like disclosure is not going to come from the government. That's into my imagination not what it's ever really meant. Disclosure has been a personal. Yeah. It's been you personally learning about something and you personally passing that mm-hmm. threshold of oh, these things are real. And that might mean learn. Yeah. It might mean being compelled by enough eyewitness testimony, or it might mean seeing something for yourself. But for me, that's what disclosure is. And people who are looking for it from the hands of authority structures, I think, are just barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, I I love that. I completely agree. And I mean, the more that people can consume these things, in which, and this brings me to something that I love to talk to you about as far as uh, death in general. But the more that you can consume anything in your life to be a better person at the end of it is what it's about. Like, you know, whether that's religion or media or the people in your world or anything. And I think when we're in a society that's so removed from death. I, uh, every time, year around this time, I live in a very old house. It was built in the like uh, late 20s, early 30s. And every year around this time, my cats start catching the mice coming into my house that I can't stop. And yeah. I clean up like three to four dead mice a week at this point that oh, wow. my cats have gotten to in the night. Yeah, it's like a, it's a problem. Well, it's at like least you've got the cats year. though, right? You know, they, They're doing their job. Yeah. But it's the only like, touch of death i have like those little mouse carcasses are like the closest thing i have to like interacting with death in a physical way so since we don't get to interact with it on a physical level like interacting with it on a imaginal or creative or just reading about it thinking about it is so important to me and i think it can just lead to living a better and more kinder life and like you know i think that's kind of what i took away from your book more than anything and i uh, yeah i think it's a really special thing you made (laughs) well you know i um thank you thank you um as you can tell it's it's extremely close to my heart um and and as i've said before you know in some other contexts like i could i could walk away from the paranormal right now and feel like i said my piece you know like it Which kind of which kind of bothers me because I always want to be like refining and developing my ideas and learning things and changing my opinion. Like I think that you know, there's so much. I remember what was it back in like the the John Kerry days? People were talking about him being a flip flopper or something like that. I'm like, yeah. well, no, people's wow. opinions are allowed to change. You know what I mean? Um, that's that's that a feels like a million. Yeah. Years ago. <laughs> seems like a very <laughs> seems like a very civilized time a million years ago, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> but uh, like people's opinions are allowed to change, and I think it's a sign of personal growth. So the the fact that I could walk away and be like, nope, this is it, kind of bothers me. But at the same time, you know, I mean, I've got some ideas in the pipeline that I still need to get out there. But uh, you know, the the reception to it has been incredibly warm. Um, and it has reached some audiences that I didn't think uh, that it would reach. Um, it's being embraced to a surprising degree in some academic circles that I would have never expected. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who would write something and say, this is my magnum opus, but, but I've had enough people say that to me that I'm like, okay, well maybe that's what it is. Um, cause I dare say it's the biggest book that I'll ever write. I don't ever want to write a book this big again, but yeah, I don't think I have yeah. to. Um, and and I, I would I would like for it to stand if I if I could think of a legacy for this thing um, moving forward. I would like for it to stand alongside ideas like the crypto terrestrial idea and the ultra terrestrial idea and the extraterrestrial idea, 
Um, and, uh, you know, some of the, in the, the straight up, you know, angels, demons, spiritual idea. Yeah. I'd like it to stand alongside those ideas as another of multiple possible pan paranormal sort of scenarios, um, that people can, you know, uh, entertain over the years, um, build upon over the years, but also very importantly, critique over the years. Like, I think that, you know, if, if somebody, uh, approaches and attacks, uh, my work and brings the receipts, like, I love that. Like, that's what the process of learning and developing is all about. So that would be my hope for ecology of souls is that it somehow is able to become shorthand in in the same way that those other ideas have over the years. Absolutely. I definitely think it has plenty of potential to do that. And maybe even more so than a lot of those ideas because of its far reachingness. Like one of the things that this book does uh, is my favorite part is how it touches all of these other things that, you know, the things you just mentioned, these ideas that are kind of uh, flag posts or like big markers of this paranormal world they don't always transfer into all these other uh all these other realms like spirituality and psychedelics and like i mean the fact that like so one of my favorite things to do like i i've heard you talk about how you got into the paranormal via listening to podcasts and that was kind of how i got back into it via like when i started searching for philosophy podcasts and stuff like that i ended on paranormal But what I found at the same time was all these spirituality podcasts and these people that are doing comparative religious studies that talk about the exact same things, just using different words. And that's kind of how I came across like Jeffrey Kripal Mm -hmm. and stuff. And I think your book holds all of those aspects. And that's something that like for ideas like this to have legs, it kind of needs, you know, like you're touching way more than just this goes way beyond the paranormal, which is really something that I I love. And I, I think people that are in this world of the weird that uh, we exist in would do a lot of good for themselves like you said listening to people like terrence mckenna or going and listening to some religious studies professors and like i'll tell you there's these podcasts where i don't understand half of what they're saying like jeff (laughs) kreipel starts talking about dual aspect monism and i'm like that sounds amazing but i don't know what the fuck you just said bud (laughs) i I, I love these words and i love how like terrence mckenna is a great example where i'm just the way he talks you don't even have to really take in the information the whole time you can just gain this qualia from listening to these people if that makes sense i like, think it, it really makes perfect is... sense well and, and there's something to be said i mean like you, you look at the way that people learn new languages i mean yeah there's plenty of people who buy rosetta stone or they you know buy a book and they read it but like there's so many people who just mm-hmm. learn it by immersion and osmosis and i yeah. think that a lot of these ideas can be like that you know, if you find totally. it's kind of like, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you, you get like you're like 10 minutes into a Shakespearean play and you're like, I have no idea what the hell they're saying. And then by the end of the act, you're like, oh, I, I, I get it. Like, I can't I can't translate it. But like the delivery, if you've got a decent troop, a, a troop of actors and like they're, they're delivering the lines and they understand the lines, then they can impart that sort of meaning to you without you realizing beat for beat exactly what's being said. Totally. And I think for so much of our life, and especially in consuming media or creativity, we're looking at like mechanisms instead of meanings. And we're trying to figure out like, why does that shake? How does that like you get that feeling of like, 
uh, goosebumps from looking at a painting and you're like, why does that happen? How does that work? Instead of being like, well, what's that supposed to do? Like, how am I supposed to continue the rest of my day now that that happened? Or like, it's so hard to like break that construct of like, how does this work instead of, and then again, this is, I think something I stole from Kripal, but the mechanism is so like, I I don't care anymore. It's the meaning behind the mechanism and it's the, it's the voice on the telephone, not the telephone. Like there's a, you know, that, 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 or maybe I stole that from you actually. I think you said that recently in something that I heard (laughs) that you, you care more about the message coming over the telephone and less about the telephone and how it works. Maybe, maybe if, if I Oh, well, it's kind of like the, uh, the, the watch analogy at the end of the book, right. Or the clock analogy. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is which is my yeah 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 it's it, you can you can take apart a clock and it can kind of give you a better understanding of time and you can see all the gears work and you can say okay well I can see how this maps onto twenty four hours a day and the cyclicality of it all but like that's not going to make you know more about yeah. what time is or like it's not going to make you more importantly like for the applied portion of it it's not going to make you more punctual oh, to understand yeah. how a yes, clock works yes. right that 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 sort of self work is not is not involved there and i think that you know looking for me that sort of paranormal um religious interface is a lot like that like i can look at this but it's not it's not telling me fundamental truths about spirituality yeah. for me you know it, it's giving me some some insight but it's not defining and shaping the way that that the spiritual component of my life yeah yeah no i agree i feel like it's um all this stuff is way too complex for it to just be one mechanism that that conveys these ideas if that makes sense i was the other day my kid is super my five-year-old is super into science right now like he loves watching this thing called mystery doug that's just about like it's like little kids asking a science teacher like you know about uh space or carnivorous plants and we were watching one on carnivorous plants on um venus fly traps and i didn't realize on venus fly traps there requires there's two hairs in the venus fly trap and both hairs have to be triggered for the trap to go off because that uh that uh trying to eat the food costs so much energy that a false uh trap is like almost deadly to the plant and i've been thinking about that in regards to creativity or the paranormal that there almost needs to be like two things like there needs to be liminality and creativity or like trauma and something else or there's always it's too complex for it just to be dulled down to one thing and it's almost like the the interaction requires a multiple trigger if that makes any sense <laughs> it may not it makes it makes perfect sense and i think that's the problem it's, it's probably best exemplified it's not the example i want to use but it's probably best exemplified in, in my chapter on uh, mountains and, yes, and that's monuments one of my favorites and how like you know people will be like it is uh, you know i always wanted to write about some of these ancient sites and they ne- there never was a really a good place to fit it until now but um but you know people will be like oh it's underground water that's why you got ghosts <laughs> <laughs> and some people will be like nope ma'am i'm sorry but your ghosts are here because you were built on a granite slab and it's like okay well all these things can't be true unless all these things can't be true unless they are, you know what I mean? So all these things can't be true separately unless all of them are true to varying degrees together. And I think that the, the model that I speculate is, as you're well aware, but for listeners, the model that I speculate is that like there's some sort of critical threshold. Those two hairs have to be triggered, right? There's some sort of critical threshold that has to be passed that might depend upon a confluence of yeah. factors. Um and, you know, there might be an area that just is naturally so weird for no good reason that it draws into the supernatural. Or it might be that, you know, 
it's got dead bodies there and there's yep. running water or it might be running water and limestone or it might be just a bunch of limestone and that's what you know just any number of different Absolutely. factors yeah. the um uh delaware case that i was talking to you about earlier the selbyville swamp monster where the fellow was dressed up as a swamp monster hoaxing things with a baseball bat and a spike that was done in a swamp that is the northernmost batch of cypress trees in america it's where cypress trees stop growing like it's the and it's a real like freak weird place that they actually grow there and it was one of the largest underground uh peat moss fires that ever existed on the east coast was all in this swamp so there's all this weird natural stuff going on in the same area that this guy is portraying this hoax and like putting out all this creative energy and i feel like that's what you know all of that stuff is part of it it's not like one or the other and i think like that that land is something special because of all of that stuff with that you know yeah, I mean, you just sort of triggered a, a, a very McKenna sort of idea in my head, which is the idea that, you know, these things just appreciate novelty. Yeah. You know? um, that, that, that novelty is novelty is the great the attractor. Of novelty. I you know, I don't think he's I don't th- I don't I don't think he said that specifically, but like he's he talked he talked enough about novelty. <laughs> I wouldn't I would imagine he would be quite sympathetic to that. idea. I was hoping so. to get one of those, Josh. That made my day. Thank you. So one of my favorite McKenna rabbit holes to go down is the novelty rabbit hole where he talks about novelty breaking down barrier barriers. And even back then, he's talking about things like transgender things and the blurring of genders and mm-hmm. this stuff that has really come true that the in society in general we don't have these rigid borders of things and he like cited novelty as being one of the kind of starts like that's what novelty does is it breaks down borders and barriers yeah and and that's i mean like people like to poo poo the sort of time wave zero thing and say oh he was kind of wrong about that but i i don't know like if you yeah. If you look at like if you look at when a lot of this sort of boundary dissolution really became apparent, I think that a lot of that kind of did start to I don't think it peaked everybody was expecting twenty twelve to be like a peak of some sort. I don't think it really was a peak. It was it was uh it was more like the the, the beginning of, of uh the sort of um the sort of shake up that we've seen. Yeah. And I think we can all agree that that the world is is very much shaken up right now. <laughs> no, I agree. Yeah. I really like the term global weirdening that I think Eric Davis uh, uses a lot or maybe have, may have coined. And like the idea that books like what you wrote and thinking that we've been talking about, about holding two ideas in your head at once, like the spiritual and the physical mm-hmm. is so important to go with this global weirdening and like paradoxical thinking is becoming more important than ever just to survive. And I think that like stuff like what you're doing is kind of preparing people for this weirder world <laughs> that we're all about to like exist in here. If that makes uh, sense. Then. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and you know, if, if there's some comfort to be found in that, because Again, another thing that I think everybody is worried about, regardless of where you fall in the political spectrum, is that we're headed for something horrific, yeah. right? Um, <clears throat> and I'm not saying that we're not, um, but I am saying that we can sort of take a certain degree of solace in the way that Terrence McKenna drew comparisons to, you know, a woman in labor. Exactly. You know, it has all the outward appearances of of death. Mm-hmm. There's blood and screaming and agony and. You know, sometimes it does end in death for the mother or the child, but, you know, 
first kid was an emergency in a, in a, in a, in a, in, i know yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 so like so like I, I guess what i'm driving at is that like out of out of horrors and instability something wonderful can can come out of that, i love the know? idea that um, as things become easier as a society in day-to-day the harshness like manifests in other ways like if that makes sense like we're not struggling like we used to be like we you know on a day-to-day basis so these big existential fears that we used to you know uh used to come out in the ways of like you know protecting yourselves from wild animals are now coming out in these global consciousness things that are pushing society to different i think like you're saying like in general it's pushing us in a more positive direction and i think like at the end of the day like all of these um all of these weird things that are ramping up are ramping up to something that like it's not just chaos there's something behind it like all of these uh you know i'm trying to think of a good way to put it and i'm sure you could put it better than i can but like all of these things have a purpose going on to them and there's something uh i don't want to say like a bigger force but there's something behind it all well you know this is this is where I, I sort of kind of land with, um, with the afterward in a lot of ways yeah. is because, you know, I, I talk about the fact that so much of what we fear is, is based on death. Like, you know, that's why we're, it's kind of why we're scared of cryptids, right? Oh, it might kill me. Like fundamentally that's, that's what's at the, at the root of that fear. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, some people who've seen something like dog man will say it's more existential, but to the point, you know, so many of our fears are based upon predicate are, are predicated upon that. But like, I guess what I'm getting at is, in the grand scheme of things, if you've read Ecology of Souls, like that's not that bad. No. Like you know, like there there are much there are much worse things to be had. And like you know, hurt, hurting a loved one or you know, yes. um, get, get, you know, uh, being the drunk driver in a drunk driving accident and you survived and the other person dies like oh i'd i'd much rather just die give me the from big flat yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know what i mean give me the dog like, man like, that's sort of, that's <laughs> yeah yeah seriously like so so i think they're you know and, and that, that sort of ties into this you know these older ideas which really do disturb me but i i kind of wonder if there's something there about these you know soul devourers on the other side of of the veil oh yeah um, you know that old egyptian egyptian idea of ameth yeah. like that's 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 what's terrifying oh, like death is not is is very much not terrifying by comparison <laughs> and that's the type of stuff that is just way more um it's way more prevalent when you get into mythology and those older texts and stuff and it's interesting that like that soul devourer guy like it almost transformed into the idea of like, you know, from shadow people to all the paranormal entities that feed off fear and all of that stuff that I, it's always been the line where I'm like, I don't like that one. <laughs> like, like everything in which people cite that are like, this thing was here just to suck the fear out of me. I don't know what it is, but there's always a knee jerk reaction. Like, Nope, don't like that. It's probably cause there's some truth to it. Um, but yeah. 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 I like the idea. I was kicking around with somebody. I think it was Jordan from a uh, campfire tales that those instances where people like uh, cite 
whatever kind of entity anomalous thing that is feeding uh, the fear of the experience to sustain themselves instead of sustaining themselves off the fear what if it's like their psychedelic what if they like trip balls off of our fear and it's more of like a a shamanic <laughs> experience from the other end because it kind of, like it lines up with the psychedelia of the high strangeness and i was kind of thinking of it like okay if you have a really fucked up makes no sense high strangeness case maybe that's just an a person just starting off with the psychedelics or an entity that's just kind of started with this this type of thing and then the more structured experiences are more experienced uh, travelers of the psychic realm psychedelic realm <laughs> or, 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 or maybe or maybe the high strangeness is the ritual the magic yeah. ritual of the other Dude, right because because you look at you look at you look at you look at magic you look at magic rituals like i've i've seen enough um I've, I've been present for enough lesser banishing rituals of the pentagram. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're like, what is this? It's, it's kind of, I mean, I know it's not nonsensical if you really dig into it, but on the surface, it is very much like nonsensical or like, you know, you're summoning, summoning an angel and you've got a chalice in the middle that you blow into Uh and like, and then you drink and then you put a drop of the liquid on a coin and stuff like that. And you're like, what? It's kind of like high strangeness that we can, rationalized right so what if so what so what if so what if the high strangeness that we see is actually them doing a ritual to summon us or something i don't know know, yeah no some sort of symbiotic magical psychedelic interaction makes me way happier than thinking of some entities feeding off fear from my soul so i just like i like kicking those weird ideas around um that's and actually so the chapter about small souls and winged souls and all of those things was so like the way you go into the um, uh, balls of light being almost like the essence of a soul or the basic like and part of a soul was one of my favorite parts of the book. And like, how much of that have you kind of incorporated in your, uh, you know, general view on the things like consciousness and the soul? Like, how flipped did this book make you to steal a, a word from Jeffrey Kreitel? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean. It, it, it flipped me right around. Um, <laughs> I, uh, for the, for the longest time, there were these outliers that I kind of didn't quite know what to do with. Um, they're not, there's, there aren't a ton of them, but there are enough stories that I did take notice of people seeing a bird transform into a UFO or a UFO transform into a bird. And I just didn't know what to do yeah. with that. But once you look at the bird as as a symbol of the soul, as it has been like literally universally, like every people so much so. Um, on, on every continent has conceptualized the, the soul as a bird, um, then you start to say, okay, well, bird soul. And then you start looking at the number of UFOs that correspond to glowing balls of light, another very common representation of the soul. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Carl Jung's idea of the the – UFO as a symbol of totality and, you know, possibly being for lack of a better term, an externalized soul, right? It starts to, it starts to make a lot more sense. And I don't know if that's some very, uh, transitive property based rationale, but, but at the same time, like it, it does have a certain parsimony to it that I find appealing. So, uh, you know, there, there's something like that. There's something like, um, you know, another thing that I just, I never liked were these pre-birth memories. Like, get, get those out of my UFO right. stories. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, oh, you were, you were, you, you met an alien 
uh, you, you you died on the Civil War battlefield and you met an alien that reincarnated you as a you know a steel worker in Punxsutawney or something like get get that out of my get that out of my UFO story right totally. but but uh, you know going through this I can't. It, Number one, those stories were never going away, right? Like they're 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 here to stay, um, and they happen from enough people. And I have this stance of of believing experiencers. So what the heck do you do with that? Absolutely. And this this story sort of allowed me to embrace that sort of flip and and to and to understand it. You know, so much of the book is also you know me just trying to figure out a way to rationalize some of the nonsense. You know, um, and and the the, the small winged soul was was something that, you know, even though, even though fairies didn't really have wings, um, in artistic depiction until what was it like maybe the late 1700s, mm-hmm. early 1800s, something like that. Um, it, it does suggest that there's some sort of earlier basis for those ideas. And then from there you start to say, okay, well then that's, that might be a reason why, so many people in so many different places in the world thought of these, you know, little people as being little people. Cause that's such an odd choice, yes. you know, like little, yeah. little, little people who live, little people who live underground starts to make more sense when you think about souls. It you know? does. It does. The, the thing inside the, the life inside the life, it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And there's like that image definitely. I love imagery. Like it's my, it's my favorite part of all of this is one of the things I like keep going back. Like the amount of inspiration I take from uh, imagery, like winged souls or like the, the glowing lights and stuff like that is just so, so prevalent in everything I do. Um, but like the stuff that sticks around from culture to culture image wise is super interesting to me. And that's something that I think you highlight really well throughout the book, whether it's animals being consistent as psychopomps or the, the small lights and the winged soul, like all of that stuff is so fascinating. What is your favorite like image or icon iconography, excuse me, iconography from this. Josh, I lost you. No, you didn't lose no, me. I was on no mute. Problem. Um, <laughs> I try to be judicious with the mute button so people don't hear me burp and cough <laughs> all the time. Um, I uh, one of the so I think a lot of what paranormal literature should do and what mine is tries to do and what mine has done for me a little bit is is to sort of reenchant the landscape to a certain degree. Um, so, you know, I've always felt that, like, mountains were beautiful, um, as many of us do. I never really understood why. Um, but now, like, mountains aren't beautiful to me anymore. They're literally magical, yeah. you know, <laughs> after, after, re- after doing the research for this book. Like, I can't separate that out from all the um, beliefs about it being an Axis Mundi and all the stories about the dead living underneath the mountain and creatures living on the mountain. Like, to me, mountains... I, I feel like are where magic happens. Yes, you know? um, so that's something that's, that's something that's definitely stuck with me. It's not necessarily um, an image though. Um, the other, there's some ideas that have stuck with me that I haven't been able to get out, but I'm trying to think of something like iconic an iconic image. Um, ah, man, I'm at a loss. Um, the mountain is perfect, dude. Honestly, like that is beautiful and makes a lot of sense. And, I love that uh, the idea of re- 
re-enchanting the world that's already so enchanted like they're like mountains are magic for a million reasons but the the image of a mountain is it, it evokes all of that well, <laughs> that that i mean that, but that's that's exactly what re-enchantment does right like it was always enchanted yes. You know, and I've gone back and forth with with Tim Renner about this. He's like, no, reality is already enchanted. I'm like, I know, I get it, but like the point of reenchantment is not to make the mundane special. It's for you to reappreciate the specialness in the mundane. Totally, um, that makes all the yeah. sense. There's, uh, yeah. I'm not gonna remember the philosopher's name or anything. There's a podcast I really like called Weird Studies, and they just had this whole episode about essentially uh, a philosopher who was talking about we disenchant things by labeling them and we've labeled everything to the point of taking the magic away from the natural world and magic is the way to re-enchant the world by dislabeling things and looking at a mountain not as a scientific hunk of rock that was created you know but looking at it as the symbol of a mountain and like re-imbuing that right <laughs> Right. That, that, that's that's one of the best ways is to just start separating yourself from language. You know, there's this great meme that I saw, which was the tide coming in and it, the tide had the label reality on it. And there was a guy driving nails into the surf and it said language <laughs> on top of the nails. And it's like, that's that's accurate. Because I'm like, you know, we think about um, we think about uh, we think about like the, the example that I go to, which is kind of a little bit bleak and dark, I guess, is um is medical ailments. You know, we, we like to think that anything that you come down with, well, somebody else has had it at some point and there's, you know, they've, they've tried treatments for it and, and some of them work and some of them don't, but then you get people who like, you know, wake up and they sneeze for seven years, yeah. you know? And like, there's not a name for these things. Like, you know, um, leukemia doesn't call itself leukemia, you know? Absolutely. Um, but we, but we put it into that box because it makes it, approachable and indeed we have to put it in a box because you know we need to keep on working on treatments for things like that but like um but it's not so much i would argue a disease as it is an outgrowth of it's like it's almost like it's it's an epiphenomena of a thousand different environmental factors yeah. that we've called a disease if that makes no, sense it you completely know I mean? makes sense and once you start going down and looking looking at like reality that way, you realize that nothing is anything, yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of it's kind of it's it's another one of those those sort of like bong rep ideas. Totally. Um, but but yeah, I've seen it from like the opposite side with my kids, where they start out with that like reality is anything and everything and all of it at once, and then they have to start labeling the world so they can function. They have to start being like, okay, this is this, and this is how I interact with this, and this, and as they like do that. You can see the their thought process change. You can see the way they interact with things completely change. Even like coloring in the lines and stopping to scribble. There's things that like there's these big moments where I feel like they define those boundaries and they define like and it's necessary, but there's almost like a sadness to it, if that makes sense. Like they're losing something that like is only available at that point. And like not that, you know, it's not a necessary thing, but it's the same thing. Like we have to call these diseases something as far as, you know, a way to work on them and make them not an issue anymore. But it's that like, it's, it's losing the other half of it that happens. Like we have to call them a disease, but we also should think about them as like a bigger idea and environmental factors and all of that as well, you know, holding both ideas at once. Well, and, and once you realize that, um, because even if it's not something like somebody waking up with sneezing for seven years, 
we've all we've all known somebody, or at least a very least a friend of a friend, who has come down with some sort of undiagnosable mystery illness yeah. that presents like several sorts of symptoms. And once you realize that that's a thing that can happen, um, and it might not even be its own like unique first case or whatever, like that's just a thing that can happen because these factors come together in ways that we don't have the tools to describe. Then you realize that kind of anything can happen, yes. and that sort of leads you back around to things like. Bigfoot, I yeah, think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's also a great way to talk about how, like, some of the um, the more harrowing experiences in the paranormal or the darker things can have a positive side to it. Like, there can be an overarching positivity, not to discount anybody's horrible experience, because I am also not much of an experiencer in any way. Like, I like to tell people I, I make stuff for a living as far as working in the world of the imagination, so I feel like I touch paranormal stuff a lot in that regards, but that's not anything like what, you know, you would hear from normal experiencers and stuff. So I don't, like, ever want to discount those things, but at the same time, I really do think that's a great way to look at how... These, these things can be horrifying and positive at the same time. Well, and, you know, I mean, but it, that, that completely tracks for me. I mean, I you, you talk to anybody who is in recovery and successful, uh, and there are a lot of really inspiring success stories. None of them would trade their rock bottoms for anything. That's true. That's you know? very true. Um, you know, they, they would say, like, I needed that. <laughs> like, I really needed that. I needed to get there so that I could, you know, have this – so I could wind up better than I ever have been. No, absolutely. I know it's a tougher topic for certain things, but things like to, to mention him for the millionth time, Jeff Kripe will talk about as far as like trauma being a trigger for these type of things. I think there's something right. like you, it's not that you have to have trauma, I guess in my, in my very small, but there's well, an, an aspect of it that like helps that flip. Or, I don't well, know. It's it it's a bit of a conundrum because you don't wish trauma on anyone of any sort. I mean, good lord! Yes. But at the same time, you look at people who haven't had any problems in their lives. You look at the trust fund kids, <laughs> and they're almost invariably little shits. Yes, you know yeah, what no, I mean? No, like, dude. So, so you have you have you have to wonder if like, well, I would I wouldn't wish this on you, but like, you you kind of need it to become a fully formed person. Yeah, and, you know? and that dark night of the soul is such a consistent thing. Like what you were speaking of going through uh, in October of 2020, like that, like transformation, that transformative process that takes a rock bottom to go through. Sometimes there's no. It's like trying to explain what synesthesia is to somebody who doesn't have synesthesia. There's no way to explain how important those things are. Like you have to live it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then again, the, the magical thing that I think happens if you do live through something like that is that it really does seem like you're all of a sudden living in one of these myth arcs, mm -hmm. you know, and that sounds really lofty, but if, if, if you can, and I, like, that was my key for recovery was to say, you know, oh, I've got to battle this day in, day out, and I've got to attend meetings and I've got to, you know, deal with this or that or the other it was to say oh no i'm embedded in this greater story that has never happened but is always happening yes. and this is this is my turn at that and you know it's really interesting uh the in the wake of that it was just insane synchronicity after insane synchronicity wow. um yeah um the the example that i often cite is that i don't know maybe you go through this too but like i often stress about the amount of software that i feel like i need to upload into my children's heads oh yeah Absolutely. You know, and it's and it's just stuff like I'll just use a term 
uh, I'll just use like a, a phrase or something. I'm like, where did I hear that first? Mm-hmm. How did I learn that? And of course the answer is cultural osmosis and I don't need to teach them that, but I, I get really worked up about like, Oh no, I have to teach them real, really, really things, really silly things. Like, you know, um, take me to your leader. Yes. Like, no, I don't have to teach them that, but like I get worked up about like, Oh, we've got to, you know, teach them about the October revolution yes. and all this stuff. Oh, <laughs> all this, all this silly exactly. stuff. <laughs> so one of these days, um, in that sort of really liminal recovery period of mine, um, I was fixated for whatever reason on Aesop's fables. And it was like this obsessive refrain the entire day. And I was away all day. And I was thinking about like, you know, I don't know where I learned Aesop's fables. Did I learn it through cultural osmosis? Did I have a book of Aesop's fables? What cartoons did I watch that told me about Aesop's fables? God, I've got to teach these boys Aesop's fables because they're really, you know, they've got to have some sort of cultural touchstone for this. When people say, you know, uh, slow and steady wins the race. And I just sort of got into this manic frenzy of obsessing because I am diagnosed OCD. Um, obsessing about Aesop's fables all day. And uh, so I go home and I, 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 I take the boys out for a walk in the stroller and I'm thinking the entire time, like, I just got to go home and go on Amazon and pick up a book for Aesop's fables. It's the only thing I've got to do. Just get Aesop's fables, Aesop's fables. And so I get the boys in, I get them out of the stroller, get them settled, and I get a phone call from my mom. And she calls me and she says, yeah, hey, I just want to let you know we're at the beach and we stopped by a bookstore and we picked up a book i think the boys will love it's a book of aesop's fables amazing (laughs) and it's just like uh, of all the like i've never i haven't talked to my mom about aesop's fables (laughs) in decades you know uh and that was the same day the same day and it was just stuff like that like nonstop. um some of it was even a little bit weirder i yeah Oh, no, that's the stuff that I love. Like, I think, like, if people could stop and just experience their lives via those lenses, they're, everyone would live in a more magical world. Like, you could, like, so many of those instances, I think people have happened to them, and they just don't have the awareness that it is happening, if that makes sense. Well, I think I think a lot of times they're they're less dramatic. That's true. <laughs> um, no, yours, that's that was a problem. big one right there. That's huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And and I think part of the reason for that is because I was I was enacting that ancient myth arc of yeah. of death and rebirth in a lot of ways. You know, I'd made a huge change, and there was the, an old part. An old, the old me had died, and the new me was in this liminal state that was becoming something different. Oh, and, man, um, Noah. So yeah, it was stuff like that, and then I had a I had a I have a little um, gnome nailed to one of my trees in the backyard. Uh-huh. And it's next to another tree that I kind of jokingly call my fairy tree because I put, when I first got here, I put a silver coin in there and poured some milk out and left some bread. And it's like, okay, this is the fairy tree. Um, and I came home one day and the gnome was off of the other tree and leaning against the fairy tree. Whoa, <laughs> it's like, that's amazing. What, what was that? I asked my wife, it wasn't her. Um, Obviously you know, your kids can't do that is, at this point. <laughs> Well, the, yeah, the kids like the kids were like one and a half to like they couldn't do it. Um, the uh, it's not like we ha- are in a situation to have their fences between us and the neighbor's yard. That's so amazing. it's not like a neighbor came over. Somebody would have had to have come up our driveway yeah. and, and even if, moved, taken it all. I'm like, why would you do yeah. that? Yeah. Even if <laughs> yeah. any of that did happen, it doesn't take away from the magic of the event. Like, that's just too cool. I love that. And I think you're absolutely right. Like once you go through um that death and rebirth that i think we all go through several times in life whether we recognize it or not i i've been 
dealing with a personal death, not in a uh, person, but in a part of uh, my life, told it a very weird way through reading all of this book. And I didn't realize that I was actually going through a grieving process from it all until actually like halfway through your book. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a big death that I just went through. And I can't really talk about too much of it because of NDAs and right. weird stuff. But it was a big like a uh, work thing that like, yeah, I was like and viewing it through that death lens made it so much easier. It made me be okay with being angry and then being upset. Like, like all the grieving shit, it makes you be like, Oh yeah, I'm grieving. That makes sense. Like, it's not just like at first you feel like you're just all wrapped up in stupid stuff that is like ego and emotions and whatnot. But then you're like, no, I'm mm -hmm. literally grieving a part of my life that's dying and that's healthy. <laughs> like that's the way it should be. Well, I'm, I'm glad that it helped. I, uh, I found out a couple of weeks ago, um, and this was a really confronting sort of discovery for me, but, uh, and I'm, I'm still, I'm still processing it. Um, I, so I do regular searches for ecology of souls just to see, like, just to see if people are talking about it, just to kind of have an idea, Absolutely. you know, so that when somebody, you know, <laughs> says that someone said something awful about me or my books, I'm like, oh, it doesn't completely blindside me. Right. Um, and, uh, I found an article uh, from New Zealand, this New Zealand newspaper. I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's an Amazon ad because, you know, sometimes those will pop up Google results. Mm -hmm. Like it has nothing to do with what you're searching for, but there's an ad for it at the bottom left or whatever. And I scrolled through and it was about this um, academic and a musician in, uh, in New Zealand who had passed away. And it was sort of a, uh op-ed on this individual or the, rather the author was lamenting sort of a loss that he'd seen. It was around the time of the queen's death. And he mentioned this friend of his, and he said that the, that, uh, the thing that this individual was reading, uh, when he died was, was ecology of souls. Really? And, uh, yeah. And it's sort of, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of emotions. It's like, um, obviously it's humbling. It's, it's, um, it's an honor. Um, at the same time, like, you know, was, was I setting him up for something that wasn't there? Um, you know, would he have been better served by reading Tolstoy in his dying days than me? Like, but like the idea that the idea that somebody was, was living in my head or depending on the way you look at it, like I was living in his head, whichever, like in his last days was really it kind of took it out of me for a couple of days, like just trying to process that. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a weird thing to know that like you were the last art that someone consumed. Like it's, that's heavy. Yeah. Yeah, it is heavy. And I don't, I don't quite have, I don't, I can't, I don't have the word for the emotion that it makes me feel. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the author of the article, I, I did a blog post about it and the author article contacted me and said that, you know, um, he was a, his friend was always a truth seeker and was very, uh, interested in it. And, and, uh, I think the book is still sitting on his bedside table or something. Oh, that's beautiful. 
Um, I, yeah, I mean, it, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a wash and chills. Yes, but, no, yeah. I just got goosebumps from that story, dude. I, I love the idea that books and media in general kind of find us when they need to. And that, like, I know I don't know if you've had a bunch of book synchronicities or music synchronicities where you just happen upon a book that's perfect for you and you didn't even know you were looking for it. But I feel like there's something to those things. And, oh, yeah. Like, I have oh, yeah. to imagine when you're uh, getting close to the other side there that or the, the passing away and all of that, you, that magic's got to click up even more. So I bet he was meant to be reading that. <laughs> Well, it, it it does seem as if it did because he uh, he uh, about a year before a year to eighteen months I think it was before his death this individual also like was like best man at the the author's funeral and and had this vision of himself dying suddenly and prematurely before he had this diagnosis for this rare neuro disease wow. and uh, a month to the day before he died <laughs> um, he saw this white bird in his garden the white form of which is not only exceedingly rare, but carries a special death omen connotation to the Maori that he wasn't aware of. Amazing. So yeah, it was just like one of those. And of course the article, the, the article that this author was writing was like, Oh, well, you know what an interesting set of coincidences, but I'm like, no, this is like, this is a cascading effect of, of, of synchronicities and uh, basically just paranormalia, paranormal stuff, uh, you know, cascading with him yeah, in preparation for, or to sort of use that momentum to carry into the other side or something. Absolutely. You know? And so it feels like, it feels like I was a part of that somehow, but like the fact that he, he would have, you know, a precognition of his death and see like a literal uh, death omen bird. <laughs> and that's like so much of the book is, is talking about stuff like that. That's, it's just, it was really weird. Amazing. It was really weird. That's so beautiful, Josh. So yeah, I, I guess the book is a synchronicity generator. I guess. But, I think um, that's, yeah, it, no, it was, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It, it was beautiful. That's amazing. I, I love that story. And I think like, I don't know what just did it, man, but you just made something pop into my head that I haven't thought about in God, 20, 30 years. And it's like, probably the first like ghost story or like the not ghost story but the first like paranormal story i have ever heard my uh my nana growing up was a pediatric nurse and she would tell us all these stories about like she worked in the terminal um cancer pediatric section of the hospital and she would tell us all these stories about kids that would be like you know not definitely not going to make it and they would come to her in a night and be like hey there's this red bike at the bottom of this bed and i'm going to ride that red bike tomorrow and it's going to be amazing can you see how awesome that red bike oh, is man. and so many times she just had to play along and be like that's a beautiful red bike you're going to have so much and she knew the next day he they would be gone and like she always it wasn't always a bike sometimes it was a family member but there was always like she had tons of these stories and like i haven't yeah. thought about i'm like so many goosebumps right now because i haven't thought about those stories yeah, me too. Me too. in so long and my nana i was brought up catholic and it was because of my nana and she was you know she believed her parents were angels that lived in the back bedroom and watched over her and like you know she was that type of catholic like mm. fully into guardian angels and things like that and like she would tell us these stories all the time and man that, that that's way deep in there but yeah well you know i i think it's i mean yeah that's a that's a goosebump inducing story um i think it's interesting that you have so many of these stories from, from, uh, terminal healthcare workers. Um, and I also think it's interesting that the more that we have isolated ourselves from the proximity of death, mm -hmm. 
coincidentally, we've convinced ourselves more and more that these things don't exist. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of wonder that if if we still kept the dying in their bedroom, mm-hmm. you know, if if we would have more of these stories firsthand, and, and there wouldn't be this broad consensus that there's nothing to it. I think that's some, there's something to that. When you just hear about the old traditions that people had of like leaving the door open for X amount of time so that the soul could pass out, those things are beautiful. And the fact that they don't really exist anymore or that they're relegated to the realm of, you know, a wing in a hospital or something is, is kind of, there's, there's a sadness to that for sure. There's some kind of disconnection that doesn't feel right. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, that's a yeah. Go ahead. I, I would get it. Does, you know, yeah, I was just, you know, just going to say, it, 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 I don't think it serves us well. Yeah. You know, I don't think it. Uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I think that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to have to add other than the fact that I don't think it's. I don't think. Ironically, I don't think of being. being I, I think not being around death is unhealthy. Yes. No. <laughs> you no. Know? I. Uh... Yeah. I could never imagine even doing things like hunting. Like I can't imagine like right. like that basic level. Even like we are talk. I had a roundtable discussion about the jackalope the other day. We were talking about taxidermy a whole bunch, and even that, like I have like a knee jerk like Ugh. like the like you know like like creating yeah. with dead stuff is like there's something that makes me like. Uh, look away <laughs> well and, and you know apparently we have like a uh a coroner shortage really a global coroner shortage wow. yeah uh, a lot of these a lot of these occupations that deal with death are are i mean like you know some of the other things like some of the trade occupations as well um are having a real shortage of people who are willing to do it yeah. which is which is why for my boys i'm, I'm gonna be like you know Look, I'm I'm definitely the product of academia. I have two master's degrees, but if you want to be a plumber, please by all yes. means. You're going to be a plumber and you're going to you're going to retire by 45 and you're going to love it. Like please do that. Dude, yeah. I am right there. My kid, like I said, is super into science right now. He wants to be an engineer, he wants to work for NASA. He's like as materialist as it can get and I'm like go for it, man. Do like yes, engineer. He wants to be a Lego designer. I'm like sure. All of that sounds way better than anything I wanted to do growing up like <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very lucky. Yeah. I mean, I get to draw silly pictures for a living and like I I I yeah, very lucky for doing it, but I would never really encourage. I'm, I'm with you. Practical life skills and whatnot are very yeah. very important. Um well, dude, I feel like this is a really good place to kind of wrap this up. We've been going for almost two hours, and I feel like we haven't touched on half of what's in the book here, but that might take another two hours in which to really dive into like the UFOs and the whole second book pretty much that we didn't even really touch on. That's just some of the best my favorite handling of the ufo uh narrative or mythology in general so i i just wanted to say that at the very least <laughs> oh well, well no I, I i appreciate it um like i said it was a labor of love but it is a lot to take in like that's that's the thing that whenever i do these interviews it's like i i we're not going to get to get to a lot of it and you know the sending it out to people to read before an interview is like I feel like I'm putting a giant imposition on their lives by like saying, here, read this. So I do have like a a chapter summary that goes through like all the salient points that I think has helped some folks. But, um, but yeah, um, I, I appreciate this is a a fantastic conversation. Like this is, 
uh, we, we touched upon some stuff that I don't normally get to touch upon, and it was it was an absolute joy. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad to hear it, Josh. It was a blast for me as well. Uh, um, when will this be out? So this is uh, gonna come because I might I might I might have a plug. Totally. Next, I'm going next Saturday, a week from Saturday, I'll have this up. Okay. Uh, so can I can I can I make a yes, plug? Yes, plug away, please. Tell everybody yeah. where to find you. Well, uh, you can find me at joshuacutchin.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N.com. The books, Ecology of Souls, Volume 1 and 2, um, are available from, unfortunately, Amazon. I hate Amazon as much as everybody else, but but honestly, their their print-on-demand stuff is really high quality at this it's point kind of next um, level it's changed the game for sure it it, it 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 is it is so good and like the the binding is good and and all of it's good um not to interrupt you but the books are like fucking beautiful yeah. like they are pieces of oh art. thank you and like i think like that's something that is like you said you put the time in and you hired the right people and it shows so like yeah you you just well, you did i amazing. really appreciate yeah, it yeah totally um so uh so uh volumes one and two are available from amazon there's also volume three that you might see that's just appendices and notes and bibliography uh those are available either to purchase in print form if you just love having physical books like i do otherwise they're also available on my website there's a url in volume one and volume two where you can download that as a pdf uh, because if you buy the books you should get the end notes for free but if you really want to have a physical copy you can get that too um also if you buy the ebook uh the ebook is volume Volumes one and two combined. Um, so, uh, and then there's a another option, which is to contact me directly for autographed copies, uh, which I do sell at a discount if you bundle them together. So that's something to consider. Um, upcoming on uh, Monday, November 21st, uh, from seven to eight thirty p.m., I'm doing a presentation through the uh, Morbid Anatomy Museum. Oh, cool. That's morbidanatomy.org, um, and I'm doing a presentation on soulcraft, understanding the UFO as a death symbol, um, which is basically the soulcraft chapter, soulcraft of UFOs chapter from Ecology of Souls, but with with visuals. So that, that'll be really fun. Uh, tickets are available at that morbid or morbidanatomy.org. I'll make sure I put a link in there because that sounds amazing. And yeah, that was one of my favorite chapters in the second book. Like so, yeah, so much good stuff in there, and I can't wait. The visuals that like. Uh, that's gonna be really cool. I'm excited for that, Josh. Yeah, that's that's that that's the Jeff Kripal chapter. Really, yeah. <laughs> like it really is. Yeah, I think I heard yeah. him mention mention it when he was on Greg Bishop's uh, show the other day, talking about his new book. I'm very excited to dig into that, the superhumanities. Yeah, one of the best things to come out of this has been a um, a friendship with Jeff, whom I didn't know until I approached for a blurb for the book. I was like, dude, you probably don't know who I am, but can I? Could you maybe look at this here? Some of our mutual friends. Oh, he's like, oh, Josh, I love your stuff. Let me, yeah, let me read this so book. Awesome. So it's, it's been great. So, 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 so Jeff and I are cooking some stuff up uh, for next year. I, I just noticed. So, I yeah. just started reading this dude, and uh, I just noticed he. It's a great book. And he's that, got a big quote on the back cover there, and I was like, oh, there's Jeff Kripal again. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so good yeah, so far. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> it's wild. I, yeah. I very very fun read so far. Oh, that was I was holding it's a up a piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I was I was holding up the immortality key. No, your your end notes and your references have led me to so many other uh, resources and sources. So it's so nice that you put so much work into that. I mean, I'm not from the world of academia, so all that stuff blows my mind and sees seems like the hardest part to be honest. <laughs> in, in in some in some ways it is, um, but also like the number of people I can't tell you 
how many people have come up to me and said, you know, I really enjoyed your book, but uh, your end notes led me on my own journey and I was able to track down stuff and I've gone off on this completely different path. And I just love hearing that, that people have like seen where something has come from and then gone off on their own, their own journey. Absolutely. It's been great. Awesome. Well, one last question for you. Is there anything mm-hmm. that you're consuming right now that you're really stoked on? Like, is there books or are you watching anything or any, any kind of media that you'd be into telling people about? Well, you know, there, I mentioned that Guillermo del Toro uh, series, which is kind of hit or miss. It's got two of like the worst Lovecraft adaptations <laughs> I've ever seen in there. Um, That's saying something. Uh, I'm actually... I'm getting ready to dive into uh, Jeff's new Super Humanities book. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, which I'm really looking forward to. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, I'm slowly working my way through the uh, complete uh, Hercule Poirot short stories. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm, tr- I'm trying to switch it up a little bit. The worst thing about the worst thing about uh, being an author and writing so much, because I have some other projects that I'm writing about 10,000 words a week for, um, is that I just don't necessarily always have the time mm-hmm. or the inclination to read, <laughs> you know, Absolutely. I feel like I've been around words all, all the time. And yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of like, yeah. Um, so, uh, but that's, that's probably where I am in terms of media consumption. That's right. awesome, man. I love that. Well, again, thank you so much for doing this, Josh. It really means a lot to me. I've been a huge fan of all the stuff you put out there and I am stoked to see what you do next. I, I, I've heard you mention some paranormal investigating and things along those lines. So I'm, I'm interested to hear where that goes. <laughs> yeah, it looks like, it looks like that might happen. You know, I kind of mentioned that I had a desire for it and uh, it's almost kind of manifested. So I have probably about three things like that in the new year that's going to come up, come down the line. So I'll, I'll be sure to report back in. Awesome. I can't wait. Well, enjoy the rest of your day and uh, yeah, thanks again. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. Thank you.